Hi everyone, Bob Whitaker here speaking to you for the final time from GDC in San Francisco. My guest today is Zoyander Street, who is a senior curator at Critical Distance and a PhD student in sociology at Lancaster University in the UK. Zoya is also editor-in-chief of Memory Insufficient, an online journal which has published a lot of great pieces on history and games. I talked with Zoya about what brought him to study games in the first place and about his current work with Critical Distance as the author of CD's weekly roundup on great video game blogging. I've been following Zoya's work for years, and it was really a great pleasure to meet him in person. I hope you enjoy the chat as well. Before I sign off, I want to say thank you to the patrons of History Respond for helping me make these interviews at GDC possible. I also want to say thank you to the organizers of GDC for supplying this poor historian with a press pass for the conference. I've been wanting to use History Respawn to engage with game developers for a long time, and I finally accomplished that goal at this year's conference. I'll be writing up a debrief of my experience at GDC at some point for HistoryRespawn.com. If you haven't already, please check out my other interviews from GDC on the History Respawn podcast feed, which is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. Finally, as always, if you're interested in supporting History Respond, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash history respond. Now, with all that nonsense out of the way, here's my talk with Zoya. All right, Zoya, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, it's really funny. I feel like we've been circling each other for a few years, yeah. especially I wrote something for Memory Insufficient. I've been trying to contribute stuff to the Critical Distance thing. And, uh, you know, you've been doing such great work with Critical Distance and also with your own research into the history of games and gaming. I'm just wondering, you know, could you tell us what's inspired your interest in history and what's inspired your interest in the history of gaming more specifically? Um, I think I have one of those hokey stories about why I got interested Bring in history. Bring it on, history. yeah. Um, I had a really good history teacher in secondary school. Um, his name was Mr. Callahan. Um, and there was something, I remember feeling, partly it felt like he was quite special because you could only have him for like a couple of years as a teacher because he wouldn't teach GCSE. Okay. So he only taught you between the ages of 11 and 14. And then he was like, peace out, I don't do exams. Right. Like, I think he just didn't like that shit. Um, so uh, I was lucky, I think I had him for two years running. Uh, maybe I only had him for one year, but um, everyone knew that you were lucky if you got Mr. Callahan. Um, and uh, one, he taught me a couple of things about history that have stayed with me ever since. One of them is uh, the idea that history is about shapes. Um, so he was like, people get really worried about memorizing dates and memorizing these cold facts about mm -hmm. what happened when. And it's backwards. Your priority needs to be understanding the shape of history. Why did things happen how they did? And from there, you'll find you understand when they happened, because it's logical. Um, and so he did this, you know, we've been, uh, we studied a lot about Hitler at, at my school. Other <laughs> schools kind of did history of medicine and stuff. Like, right. There are a few different routes that a school can take with the curriculum on history. 
my school was really into uh, studying dictators. Right. Um, and I feel differently about that this year than I did ever before. Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, I got really irritated by it at the time. Yeah. But anyway, we've been studying a load of stuff about Hitler. And uh, so he draws us this timeline on the board and he's like, okay, so um, when did when did Hitler come to power? We knew that date, put that down. And when did the Second World War start? We knew that date, put that down. And then he's like, when was the Reichstag fire? And then we're like, uh... And so we just worked it out in relation to everything else, mm -hmm. right? Well, it has to have happened before this and after that. Um, and just event by event, we laid out this timeline, not by having memorized the dates, but by understanding why things happened. I loved that. I loved the fact that history for, for Mr. Callahan was about understanding why do things happen. Um, you know, another good Mr. Callahan lecture that always stayed with me was the one about um, the Wall Street crash. So, you know, we're 12, so we don't know what the stock market is. <laughs> so he told this whole story about, okay, let's say I start an ice cream shop. And uh, it's just me in my kitchen making ice cream and selling it to my friends once in a while. Um, uh, but my ice cream is really popular and more and more people want it. And I would quite like to quit my job and make ice cream full time. How does this happen? Mm -hmm. And through explaining to us how you make ice cream, we understood why the Wall Street crash happened. Yeah. Um, so he was really good at understanding history as dynamics and conveying that to children. Right. Um, and so that was, I think, why I became a historian. I remember there was also a thing where I was advised at the time that if you want to be a journalist, you should study history because journalism isn't a real degree. Right. <laughs> I see. <laughs> no. I don't think any historians would say that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone thinks that anymore. I think people maybe thought that in the 70s. Maybe. Um, but uh, I got really into history partly because of that as well. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember why I liked the idea of being a journalist. I don't remember what I thought a journalist was at the time. And I don't know whether I am a journalist now, but uh, I often go to Well, they always the call pass. journalism the first draft of history, right? So maybe yeah. you're on the bleeding edge, as yeah. they say, of um, the history profession. And I don't have like a beat. I don't have to like produce loads and loads of articles a day or anything like that, which I, I am quite glad about. Yeah. Although if Kotaku wants to hire me, they can. It'll be fine. But like, um, it's it's a totally different kind of work than I do to people who are full-time journalists. Right. Um, but to some degree, I am reporting on the things that I like see around me, and I'm putting myself in situations where I will see more interesting things that I can report on. Right. Um, so yeah, that was this kind of desire to understand why do things happen. Uh, was kind of what pushed me into history. And also, uh, at around that age, I was discovering I'm, I'm quite good at languages. I have subsequently had teachers who disagree with me on this assessment, but at that point, I was like, okay, this is a thing I can do. I should, although there's a lot of things I'm interested in, I should probably pick the ones that I am good at um, to give myself a, well, a slightly easier life. Yep. Um, yeah. So I did history and languages for most of my teens after that. Uh, then I did Japanese studies at Cambridge. Uh, I made a deal with my mum. Uh, she didn't want me going to the other end of the world. Uh, but if I got into Cambridge, I was allowed to do Japanese. If I didn't get into Cambridge, I had to do Spanish. Uh. Um, which I would have been happy with. Um, 
uh, but I would have been making less money now, I think. Um, <laughs> whereas Japanese translation is kind of about half of where my income comes in. So wow, it, okay. It's a really good way of supporting creative work. Sure. Because it's really flexible. You do work just on spec when you ask to. Um, and uh, so it allows you to kind of make it into kind of a blended lifestyle sure. rather than needing to find a day job that takes 40 hours a week yeah. and, and then that, squeeze everything into the evening. Is that translation work? Is it related to games? Is it localization? It's not. Okay. Uh, it's academic translation. Okay. Uh, but I would like to focus more on games. Um, and that's sort of a big project at the moment is trying to make more and more of my working life be focused on games rather than constantly having to extend myself in order to right. make money to support the game stuff that I do. Right, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was Japanese studies. Um, and then from there I went on to do a master's at the Victoria and Albert Museum in History of Design. Great, wow. Um, and by that point I'd gotten really into early modern Japan and I was going to focus it on curating early modern Japanese ceramics. Um, but I, I found myself getting, well, my mind would wander in class. Um, I found that my mind was often wandering to thinking about games as historical texts. Right. Topics would come up that I'd been exploring in a simulation of, of some sort. It wouldn't even necessarily be a historical simulation. Like, I'd been playing a lot of Dwarf Fortress. Dwarf Fortress was one of the games that I played. Oh my gosh, yeah. It was, it was a game that I played when I told myself I wasn't playing video games. I'm like, I'm too busy to play video games. I have to be serious and study. Dwarf Fortress doesn't count. Because <laughs> uh, it's so abstract and interesting. Yeah. Um, well, Dwarf Fortress, I mean, I've been I've heard it compared to learning a new language, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, and Dwarf Fortress has its own very complex ideas about why do things happen the way that they do, mm -hmm. right? So uh, I'd been playing a lot of Dwarf Fortress and then think topics would come up in class like, um, we have no way of imagining what it might be like to be a merchant on the coast of, say, um, uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh -huh. Um, trading with sailors, um, goods that you've, you've acquired from uh, merchants further inland, and what kind of decisions you have to make in terms of like, navigating those cultural boundaries and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And uh, so to historians who work in text-based sources, it was like, yeah, we don't know. All we can do is kind of trace the results of those sure. decisions people made. But I was like, no, we can actually put ourselves in that situation and make those sorts of decisions on the fly. Because I was making decisions about how to trade with elves in Dwarf Fortress that involve a lot of very fraught cultural conflict mm -hmm. that could result in everybody dying. Mm -hmm. Like, if you trade wood with elves, then you're in serious trouble. And it affects your entire production process. Like, okay, how do I make sure that my practice as a merchant um, does not lead to like a bunch of people dying. Um, so those sort of decision-making processes where you're embedded in a big complex system and managing multiple people's interests um, are something that you can experience through simulation. Absolutely. Um, and the, at the time it felt like historians were not um, 
were largely not aware of or interested in or didn't think was credible. Uh, so I brought this up with my supervisor and said I'd like to do a video games reading group between like historians and engineers. I figured that video games are this interdisciplinary medium, right? So we should have an interdisciplinary group. Um, and uh, my supervisor was like, that's a lovely idea. Maybe <laughs> first you should write a paper about a video game to show that you can have historical conversations about games. Sure. And I was like, oh, I didn't know I could write a paper about that. Like, here I am at a museum doing a master's degree where we're meant to work with collections. Like, I didn't know that that was an option. And she's like, we should try it. So I did, and I wrote a paper on Final Fantasy games, and I kind of treated Final Fantasy games as if they were their own museum collection. Mm. Um, and I looked at swords in those games as objects within that collection. Um, and in the process of kind of doing the background research for that and understanding what game studies is and, um, and what kind of work had already been done, and thinking about things like, um, uh, like some phenomenologies that are often used to help people think about games. Um, there's some really important work on perception uh, that's theoretical that was done in like the 60s or 70s mm -hmm. that continues to have a huge influence on the way that we think about interactive media today. Um, thinking about affordances, um, about how environments and designs signal st what you can do. Mm -hmm. um, so that went on to have a big influence on people like uh, Don Norman writing The Design of Everyday Things around the same time that my current PhD supervisor, Lucy Stutchman, was also doing work in um, uh, how do you design electronic devices so that they communicate with the user. Um, so I was encountering things like that, which have already had a big influence on how we think about games. And combining that with what I'd learned about the history of design, about methodologies for thinking about designed objects, um, and about cultural history, and I could sort of see, okay, this is at least a 10-year project, and I really want to do it. Like, I want someone to do it, and I want it to be me, because there's such a uh, specific combination of issues that I want to navigate here that I've already worked in. Mm -hmm. um, and I really want to do this work. So I'm halfway through that 10 years. Yeah. And I'll probably go at it for more than 10. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, yeah, that's kind of the thread I've been following ever since. Yeah, I mean, from that perspective, and coming out of academia and engaging with games, I mean, do you feel like academia has given you the space that you needed in order to do that kind of research, or do you feel like there's some pushback on the part of other academics, maybe supervisors, For the most part, colleagues? academia's been great in that sense. Yeah. Um, and when I do get pushback, it's been really generative. Um, so, for example, there was a Marxist historian on my History of Design course who uh, really objected to, in my first paper, um, I was doing everything from the perspective of the video game world. And he was like, what's at stake when we ignore the materiality of these worlds as fictions um, and treat them as though they were self-contained realities? Mm -hmm. um, what are we obscuring about the labor relations, about the production and consumption that goes behind these games when we just buy into their own reality? And I chafed at that at the time yeah. uh, because um, 
I wanted to stand up for the idea that what we experience in games is, although it's a fiction, um, there's a consistency to it that informs our experience in a way that people who aren't into games don't quite get. Mm -hmm. But I also thought it was important to take his criticism on board and see what I could do with it. Um, so the paper developed into something that kind of did both, where I was then looking for those through lines between the realities portrayed in Final Fantasy games and the economic conditions surrounding their production. Um, and it really transformed the paper. Um, and it pushed me to politicize my histories more, mm -hmm. which I think is completely invaluable. Um, if I hadn't had someone push me in that way um, and I think perhaps that kind of pushing doesn't happen as much in game studies as it does when you're working in an interdisciplinary way on games um, yeah I don't think I would have as much confidence now that the work I'm doing is um, politically relevant like I think my conscience would be hurting a bit more and I don't mean that as a judgment on anybody else sure uh, but oh, for no. me kind of you know it's been difficult since Brexit and since the election, obviously, yeah. um, to be a person who works in games and going like, is what I'm doing helpful? Like the the, the world is on the brink of something. Am I doing the work I should be doing? And that kind of early pushback that I received helped me to make sure that I'm always working in a way that's like, you know, if I die tomorrow, like, do yeah. I feel good about what I'm doing? Yeah. Oh, you feel good about everything except the GDC party you went to yeah. last night. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this GDC seemed particularly focused on the issue of history, you know, the issue of historical games, but then also uh, historical preservation of video games. And we've got a lot of panels, post-mortems dedicated to that topic. Uh, we've also got a lot of standalone booths. There's a couple of video game museums that are in the expo hall. So what do you make of this trend of kind of focusing on preservation but then also history in games? And, and is there anything at the expo that you're maybe hoping to see in that vein? Um, so I'm working on a project about this at the moment. I've been traveling around the West Coast making a series of um, short-form documentaries about people who are preserving and curating games, uh, well, archiving and curating. Sure, yeah. I haven't actually spoken to any conservationists or like people who do preservation. Um, and so to some degree, I haven't made anything of it yet because I'm still generating all this material. Um, but one thing that struck me is that it's a very contested area now. Um, three or four years ago I would hear about preservation and archiving projects and people would it, it was generally understood that this is an extremely challenging piece of work that needs to be done um, because you know bit rot has been happening so quickly sure yeah and because there are so many copyright issues that prevent you from doing things that are actually quite sensible solutions um, because there's this delicate balance between making things playable and making them safe mm -hmm. and all that kind of thing. Um, but there also at that time seemed to be a lot of people coming at it from the same perspective and who broadly agreed with each other on how it should be done. So there, I was learning about collections in Nottingham in the UK, in Tokyo, 
um, and somewhere else, somewhere in the US, um, where what they were doing is like bringing together a balance of software and hardware and ephemera. Um, and the big thing was, uh, as people who deal with archives and museums, people go, you know what, ephemera is important. It's not something that people from the game side think about, but it's something that historians and people in cultural studies find extremely useful. All the time. And we yeah. don't have the same preservation problems with it. We already know how to preserve booklets yeah. um, and all that kind of thing. So that's going to be a really important backup if everything else fails as well. Um, so that's where things were then. Now, as I go around and talk to people about this, people are coming at it from lots of different perspectives. I've spoken to people who are um, teachers in computer science who have generated their own collection. They don't want it to go to a library because they want to keep it playable. And they kind of don't want to conserve it, basically. I might be misrepresenting them. but. Um, They've said, we accept that we will lose some of this collection. I wonder if they know how much of it they will lose, but like, um, they're coming at it from, we just want to teach and we want our students to have that literacy in um, the history of video games and in video game interface as a form that has its own, that's developed over time. And I would say as a historian, I think one of the really great things that they're aiming toward as educators, and I've seen this at other places that, where people work with students as well, um, people are recognizing that 18-year-olds uh, who are learning game design now um, don't really understand what happened in games before 10 years ago. And as such, their view on history is teleological, right? Um, so it all leads up to the proper way of doing video games as we do them now. <laughs> and it closes down your design options. Sure. Whereas if you go back into the design history and you look at what was happening in like demo scene in the early 90s or something like sure. that, then suddenly you have all these other ways that things could have been. Yep. And Just take VR, for example. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, VR was going concerned. And I think a lot of people, like you were saying, have this kind of lack of knowledge about just recent past with VR. Yeah. And with things like VR, I'm sure a lot of people who've been working in the field for a lot longer would say, like, there are problems that people are running into now that it's not necessarily that they were solved and tidied up, but we produced all this material where we were talking about those problems and now people are talking about it again as if it's new instead yeah. of standing on like you know standing on the platform of what's already been built and right. going further um, because it's been quite difficult to get people in contact with that history you know it's not just that people don't appreciate history and so they don't do that learning that's part of it but it's also that um, how are they going to do it? Where is the material? Yeah. Where are they going to do it? And it seems like it could help developers so much because if you have some semblance of what problems they ran into in the past, it might be a way to avoid those pitfalls in the future. Yeah. So. Um, and I think there is a disciplinary issue where tech people are not usually trained in how to think about cause and effect, right? How to think about the effect they have on the world. How to think about how they came to make the things they're making now. Um, not to think about like what are the uh, political implications of the networks of production and consumption in which I work and how do I navigate that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that leads to troubling effects sometimes and it also leads to people not being able to act out their intentions through their designs. Mm. 
you know, it leads to that response to a call out of some sort where it's like, well, that wasn't my intent, and so I'm fine. And it's like, okay, we're not debating here whether or not you're evil. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> we're debating, like, um, whether your design could be changed in order to have fewer bad effects on the world. Like, let's mm -hmm. get to that point. Right. Um, like, history gives you a way of thinking about your actions in the world. Um, and I've, I think some, I think I have spoken to some educators who see a need for archiving and preservation for that reason as right. well. Right. Um, like in order to produce more responsible game developers and people working in other fields of interaction and what have you. Yeah. Um, so you've been working the past year with Critical Distance as a senior curator, and you know I definitely get a lot out of uh, weekly blogs that you have. You know these curated lists of great content about games, criticism of games. Uh, and I'm just wondering, what has that experience been like? Because, you know, it's not like you're just putting up a list of links. It's you're taking the time to go through and, you know, kind of create a narrative about the curated list that you've come up with. And I'm just wondering, you know, what's that experience been like and how has it informed your PhD work at all? So before I started the job, when I was interviewing for it, one of my goals was to make the critical distance roundups less like a wall of text. Mm -hmm. They weren't list-like. Before I came along, they were um, links were embedded in the paragraph. Um, so there was already this uh, very clear goal at critical distance to um, put together all of this writing into a narrative that could be digested at the end of every week. Um, but... Um, it was quite unapproachable, even as someone who's a reader, um, it was quite unapproachable to open a roundup and know kind of what am I going to click on and like what am I going to read next. Mm -hmm. um, and so to people who don't actually, who don't spend hours a day reading, um, it seemed like it would be even more so. Um, Shortly after I took on the job, we received an email from someone basically saying that, like, well, I just came on your website and all I found was, like, a big wall of text and there are no images and I don't... Is your website broken? Like, I literally don't understand why it looks the way that it does. Um, so... So reserved criticism there, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I think that was after I took on the job. It may have actually been before. It may have been that I recommended Critical Distance to someone, and then they were like, well, I went on there, and no, 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 no. Yeah. And uh, so that's, I kind of understood where that was coming from. Um, um, so, and I also wanted the roundups to be a little bit more navigable. Like, I wanted to, one thing, one of the reasons I'm a reader, rather than kind of a, uh, video watch, although I've started getting into making video now, so I'm more interested in the language Good. of film now. Yeah. But um, uh, one of the reasons why I kind of tend more naturally toward reading than watching videos in order to get my content from the internet, which is a thing that I have to understand my audience now that they don't do that. Um, uh, but for me, reading is more participatory. Um, if I don't like a paragraph, then I don't need to read it. Like, if, I'm start, if I start something and I'm like, eh, that person's veered off point, I can skip it. Mm -hmm. Or if I, like, um, uh, want to understand someone's argument, I can read the introduction and the conclusion, 
and then go, whoa, how did they get there? And then go back and read through. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't actually have to read writing in a linear way. Producing writing is linear, and that's kind of the hardest thing about being a writer, I think, is that Absolutely. your thoughts are multidimensional. Writing is one-dimensional. You are putting phonemes in a line, one after another, until meaning comes out. Right. Um, and that is hard. But as a reader, you don't need to read that way. Like, you can go all over the place. Uh, whereas video is very linear, uh, consuming it. Mm -hmm. uh, editing is not linear. Um, so it's sort of the opposite. Sure. Um, so yeah, I wanted to make sure that the roundups were like laid out and organized in a way that um, if you read it linearly, then it's rewarding. But if you don't have time or you don't have that much attention to pay to it, then uh, you can pick out the bits that you're curious about. Mm -hmm. um, so that meant using, making much more liberal use of subheadings. Um, there's a technical thing about how critical distance is designed now that I haven't fully taken advantage of yet, but I use um, uh, ID tags on all of our subheadings. So that um, if you're p interested in a particular topic that we regularly cover, and that those are represented in the tags on the posts. Great, um, okay. So all those tags reflect one heading. Ah. So you can go to the tag for that heading and just go... Look up history or something like that. Yeah, yeah. so temporality is one of our right. tags. So if you want to read everything that we've pulled together on the theme of history, how we relate to time, how we relate to memory and that kind of thing, then you can navigate through all of the temporalities tags. Mm -hmm. And we're building a tool that allows you to do that. Um, but I need to make it work properly before I launch it. <laughs> at the moment, it's jerry-rigged together in a way that would be irresponsible right. to put out to the public. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so that was part of it, like making sure that it's cross-navigable and that you can use the subheadings to figure out where you want to be. Um, and making sure that the links are actually their own bullet points now rather than embedded in the paragraph. So that you get that overview of like, um, even if you don't, like you read the paragraph and then you're like, oh, that one looks cool, right? Rather than feeling like you're actually gonna have to open every single link in order to understand what this roundup is about, mm -hmm. which is a big ask. Um, so uh, so that was, a, that was a major shift that I wanted to bring in. And that shift really finished in September rather than like, I, it went in a little bit when I started, like I started using bullet points and subheadings quite early on, but then I did a major site redesign in September. Mm -hmm. um, and that w I think that's kind of where I was able to, especially with bringing in some of these WordPress tools that I'd learned about from web designers and other projects um, to make the site look less like a wall of text mm -hmm. and to make it more dynamic. Um, yeah, that was when I was able to bring that in. Mm -hmm. And I mean, what has been kind of the most rewarding thing about working on Critical Distance as far as, you know, kind of own personal knowledge and enjoyment with games? Um, there's a few rewards of this. One of them is that I feel like I have a much better understanding of um, the kind of work that's being done now. Mm -hmm. Um, and obviously I'm trying to share that understanding with others through the roundups. Um, but for example, like we could, the example I always give is about history actually, um, where it was a few months into working at Critical Distance that I came to appreciate that um, there's a major disciplinary split in people who look at games and history, where um, there's history as, um, 
kind of being about questions of accuracy, right? So like those conversations that happen around a game where it's like, mm -hmm. okay, this is how a game is portraying mm -hmm. a particular part of history, and how does that gel with your understanding of that time in history? Um, and then there's history as uh, this um, inquiry into why do things happen the way they do and how do we understand our place in all of it. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of more my own background in history. Mm -hmm. um, and suddenly a lot of stuff about the way that my own work gets read made a lot more sense. Um, sometimes I would feel frustrated that someone's main feedback on, like a history geek would read something I'd written and their main piece of feedback would be, well, you got this particular fact wrong. So what kind of a historian are you? <laughs> and I'm like, historians get facts wrong all the time. But like, it's not about that individual fact. Like, what did you think about my argument? Like, that's one fact among like about five premises that mm -hmm. led to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. Does it change your reading of the conclusion? I'm not super interested in the details of like, well, actually that console came out like a year earlier. Right. Unless it affects the conclusion. Right. Um, but I think it's because my writing is structured to lead to a totally different conclusion to what they're actually looking for. Um, so it's helped me understand my own, where my own writing fits into mm -hmm. what everybody else is doing a lot more. Um, and it's also been rewarding because the joy that I get from a from particular pieces of writing now is so much magnified compared to before. Mm -hmm. um, because now, when something's re a really unique jewel of a piece of writing, then I have a stronger sense of how rare it is, right? Mm -hmm. And about what it means for someone to have managed that. Um, so, like, there are particular things, like, um, there's a, this, I don't know why I'm giving this example. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give this example of a video by a guy called H-Bomber H Guy. Okay. Now, in general, I think this guy is really special as a essayist and as a video creator. Mm -hmm. So um, he's someone who comes from a film studies background. He really cares about communicating using the language of film. Mm -hmm. And I think I learned a lot from him about what I want to do if and when I go into video. And now that I'm doing that, like, I'm going to do a totally different style to him, but I want to feel like I'm a fraction as skilled as he is. Mm -hmm. um, he has this very Charlie Brooker-esque style of self-effacing acerbic humor mm -hmm. alongside genuine like uh, insight into critical theory um, and the political implications of what you're doing. And he did a video that is I think at least an hour long, maybe an hour and a half, an, an hour and a half, um, about Undertale, which mm. is one of my favorite games, mm. uh, um, called Perverted Sentimentality, which is just a quote that happens at some point in the game. Uh -huh. um, and I hate hour-long videos. They do my fucking head <laughs> And they get sent to me like every week or two. Oh my God. And I have no idea how to do them justice. Yeah. Because I... I feel guilty about anything and goes over 15 minutes. So. Right. Yeah. Um, invariably, hour-long videos are completely unfocused. It's a, an hour-long video is about five to 6,000 words. 
And it's the same when I'm editing a five to six thousand word piece. If someone sends something and it's that volume, then I'm like, well, fuck. Like, this is going to be a job. Not just because it's a lot of reading, but because yeah. I am going to have to erase at least a third of it because yeah. it will not be relevant um, as the editor. So then, like, as someone, and again, you can't jump around a video, it's linear. Um, you can, but you're not actually understanding how someone got to where they're going. And, right. Yeah. Um, so, but this perverted sentimentality, I've watched in a single sitting, um, which is not something I do. And it's just that it's, it's very well edited and it has an argument that like it layers on top of itself, mm -hmm. right? Which is what you want from something long form. Mm -hmm. um, so we get somewhere at the end and you're like, you, you feel like you got somewhere with him. Mm. Right? Um, and I think before I did Critical Distance, I might have watched that and gone, that was quite good. Good job. <laughs> now that I'm like acting as a curator of this stuff, I see something like that and I'm like, I really appreciate the amount of skill and forethought that goes into making something like that mm -hmm. more than I did before. Mm -hmm. And the same with other pieces of writing. Sometimes it's about skill and forethought. Sometimes it's about the amount of bravery it took for someone to write something, right? right? Um, there was a piece after GDC last year because we had another one of those perennial, maybe we won't have one this year. We haven't had one yet, I don't think. Uh, those perennial GDC controversies where a major company um, hires a staff to entertain guests mm. by being attractive women and flirting with people, right? right? Or it'll be that they've hired uh, dancers or whatever. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it always makes people profoundly uncomfortable right. because it's, uh, it assumes that this is a male-dominated environment. It assumes that it's dominated by men who want to consume women in a particular way. Um, so it makes women feel excluded, and it also affects the tone, right, in a way that people don't want, a lot mm -hmm. of people don't want anyway. So we have this come up like almost every year. Last year this came up, and we finally got a piece that's written by someone who's done that job. Mm. And so we stop talking about these people as a, like we end up inadvertently, even if we're coming from a feminist perspective, as people who don't do that work, we end up talking about uh, people who are doing these forms of service work as as if they're the problem, right? right? As if they're this unsavory object right. that like came into our space and we don't like it. Um, as if they weren't paid to be there, you know? Yeah. Well, the fact that they're paid to be there is part of the discomfort, right? right? But like, you know, when when we talk about the problem, we would label it as something like, um, you know, pole dancers at industry parties mm -hmm. are a problem, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and so, like, we objectify these people and make them into, like, this um, thing that's anathema. Mm -hmm. um, so it meant so much to finally have um, someone put themselves out there and go, right. like, okay, like, I'm someone who's done this work, this is what it's like, um, this is how it feels to read this kind of analysis of, like, what it means for people like me to be hired. Um, and this is the uh, actual skill that's involved in what I do. Um, and I think that was important, kind mm -hmm. of reclaiming some uh, 
uh, some dignity and respect for what you've been doing. Right. Because um, ultimately, I mean, I'm not defending the uh, practice of hiring uh, um, booth babes, basically. Basically. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it's a really bad uh, practice on the part of the organizers, right? Um, but as an actual profession, it's fine. Yeah. Like they're not they're not bad people for doing that profession. Yeah. Um, and so that that piece of writing was really important, essentially. Yeah. You know. Well, it's been my perspective. I don't know if you share this perspective. It seems like games writing has gotten much much better in the past five or six years. Yes. So it's really encouraging, and uh, it really helps a lot, though, that you're there to kind of curate material, because otherwise, I think I'd just be completely drowned and yeah. trying to come across all yeah, of Yeah, to, to give a data point for context, um, I typically start the week with, um, well, I typically start the roundup process uh, with around 500 pieces of writing oh to filter through. Um, now, not all of that filtering happens by reading it. Um, it's often by headline, because I know yeah. that, um, you know, part of it is, um, uh, I don't need to read uh, articles about a particular deal on like Belkin USB hubs. Sure. Um, also, if a headline is like um, there's a game that exists in which you do this, then that, and that's not that's not quite what we're looking for. Right. Um, so I can remove that based on the headline. Um, but. Uh, yeah, it starts off with 500, and then it's a process of whittling it down to between uh, 1 and 200. Right. Um, and then from there, it's a process of reading all of them. Wow. Uh, over about 24 to 36 hours. Oh, gosh. Um, well, yeah, so, uh, as they say, that you're doing the Lord's work. So, <laughs> thank you. Uh, I think that uh, somebody's probably trying to come in here now, but thanks so much for your time. It's thank been you. great to finally talk to you after we've been like hovering around each other online for years yeah, and years. So absolutely. it's a great pleasure.